Hi, everyone. This is Lindsay, one of the hosts of Yield Crime. Just wanted to give you a heads up that since you were listening to an earlier episode of Yield Crime, you may notice that the audio quality isn't the best. It does get better, I promise. If you are willing to stick with it, great. If you'd rather start with better quality audio, I would suggest skipping ahead to episode 19 when we purchased newer, better audio equipment. And on that note, thank you for listening and on with the show. Hi, I'm Jenny, the host of It's Murder Up North. If you're curious about the murderous north of England, this podcast is definitely for you. I've lived in various parts of the north of England. I went to college in the shadow of Saddleworth Moor, where Myra Hindley and Ian Brady buried those five innocent children. I've worked in the city of Leeds, where the Yorkshire Ripper targeted his victims in the 1970s. Knowing how geographically close I've been to these crimes made me curious, and that curiosity became this podcast. However, my main hope is to help you see the person, not the victim. Welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Sangle. Hey! What's the haps? Just another blur's day afternoon. It's hot as balls. And uh, I think I've taken four showers today. Same. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we tolerate a lot up north, mm-hmm. but I am not one of those that tolerates heat. There's a reason why I live this far north. I don't like it. Wow. Neither does Willie. Okay, that was my dog, Willie. I swear it wasn't me. So today we are going to be discussing another uh, female like we did with Lavinia Fisher, the murderess who was not a murderess. Just... Apparently like to punch people. I mean, same. Um, today we are going to be discussing Mary Ann Cotton. Are you familiar with that name? No. Awesome. I think you'll dig it in a, a really sad way. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we shall see. Fuck me so, up. Yep. Let's do it. <laughs> Make me feel all the things. Right. I was happy. I was happy. Let's see how you're feeling again at the end of this episode. (laughs) Keep track at home. So information for this episode was pulled from the following sources. Um, A 2015 Mental Floss article by Miss Selenia. A 2019 Daily Mail article by Mark Duell. 2019 Bustle article by Afi Hanna. A 2019 Chronicle Live article by David Morton. The Mary Ann Cotton website. Ooh, she's got her own URL. Mm-hmm. Good on her. I bet you she doesn't pay for it. She go daddy's it. Uh, an article on Encyclopedia Britannica by Amy Tikkanen. Wow. And last but not least, uh, Murderpedia and Wikipedia. And links to all of these articles, as always, will be included in the show notes. So, Mary Ann Cotton was an English serial killer from the 1800s who murdered as many as 21 people using poison. 
It was probably a lot more than that. She got up to the 20s. Well, you'll kind of understand once okay. we get going. I feel like after you hit like five and you're successful and it's something like poison, you'd be like, what if I put it in this milk? I'm going to put it in the bread. Oops. Your cleaning supplies have poison in them. <clears throat> 21 people. Mm-hmm. Damn. So we're going to delve into her life, her victims, and her motivations behind the slings. Was it money? Mm-hmm. We shall see. <laughs> it was bread. It was always bread. She just it was all about I mean, that carb life. <laughs> carbs kill. Carbs kill. Okay, so let's get into it. There's a lot of English city names in this, which I'm probably horribly going to mangle. So it's their own fault for naming them that way. So bear with me. I apologize to all my international listeners, all three of you. (laughs) (laughs) So Mary was born as Mary Ann Robson on October 31st, 1832 at Low Moorsley, which is now part of Hetton La Hole in the city of Sunderland. Her parents were Michael Robson and Margaret Lonsdale. She had a sister named Margaret, who was born in 1834, but she sadly passed after a couple of months, Mm. and a brother named Robert, who was born in 1835, so he was three years younger than her. That's pretty average. Mm -hmm. Only two kids seems low. They must, they were, were they in like a, more of a city and not so much like a farming community where you just kind of like birth your workers (laughs) yeah i think they were more of like a a growing city okay no shame in that i mean no you come from a family that birthed their workers too (laughs) just Mm -hmm. what you did yeah uh it is said that mary's father was a very religious man and also a fierce disciplinarian of mary and robert that's always the perfect combination that's like the the salt and spice for every serial killer, isn't it? It's the salt and spice that starts the sweet, sweet recipe for uh, murder. <laughs> so at the age of eight, Mary's family moved to the village of Merton, where her father worked as a colliery sinker, which is someone who specializes in creating new mines. And at the time, that was considered an extremely elite position in the mining profession. Yeah, because you'd die. <laughs> like at any moment. In fact, in February of 1842, her father fell 150 feet to his death down a mine shaft at Merton Mine. Uh, his remains were delivered to her mother in a sack that was stamped with property of the South Heaton Coal Company. Wow. So life insurance wasn't a thing. <laughs> um, Neither yeah. was tacked. Got it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Cool. 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 Yeah. cool. Got it. So in 1843, a year after her father's death, Mary's mother remarried to George Stott, who was also a minor. She has a type. Well, it was one of the most um, profitable professions in that area. Like a lot of people worked in the mining industry. It was a booming industry in that area. Get it, mom. So... She knew how to provide. Well, and if they didn't figure something out, 
where they were currently living was a house they were renting through the mining company. And if a miner wasn't living there and paying for it, they'd be kicked out. Yeah. They couldn't live there anymore. So she had a type. So she had a type. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And it was noted that Mary loathed her new stepfather, which is always great. I feel like that's just a common thing. Mm -hmm. And once she turned 16, Mary moved to the neighboring village of South Heaton to become a nurse in the home of Edward Potter, who was a manager at the Merton coal mine. And three years after she'd arrived, once all of his children had been sent to boarding school, she returned home and started training to be a dressmaker. Nice. So not not too bad of a start. So far, so good. Mm -hmm. Dresses are nice. Yeah. Ladies need to wear dresses. So in 1852, Mary, who is said to be strikingly beautiful, married a mining laborer named William Mowbray, and they soon moved to southwest England. And at the age of 24, she gave birth to daughter Margaret Jane in 1856. Afterwards, Mary and William soon moved back to northeast England, where William found work at various railroad construction sites before working as a coal mine foreman. Uh, The couple welcomed a second daughter, Isabella, in 1858, and their first daughter, Margaret, passed away in 1860 at the age of four. They had another daughter, which they also named Margaret Jane, in 1861, and then a son named John Robert William in 1863. John died a year later with gastric fever listed as the cause. Oh, gastric fever? Mm Mm-hmm. Dysentery? Yeah, that was, that's what they would post on the death certificate if a death was attributed to something like dysentery or um, I think it was gastroenteritis. Can you imagine dying from that? Yeah, no, thanks. That's like a side effect of every medication ever. (laughs) Yeah. So during their four-year marriage, Mary and William argued almost constantly about money and it got so bad that William took work as a fireman on the steam vessel Newburn in Sunderland just so he could get away from her. Nice. Uh, And after coming home to nurse a foot injury, Mary's husband, William, died in January of 1865 of an intestinal disorder. Oh, I don't like where this is going. Yep. Thankfully, the lives of William and his three children were insured by the British and Prudential Insurance Office. So Mary was able to collect a payout of 35 pounds after William's death, which would have been the equivalent of half a year's wages for a manual laborer at the time. Damn. And two pounds for John Robert upon his passing. And this amount would total around 3,400 pounds today. Wow. That's so sad. (laughs) Mm -hmm. After William's death, Mary moved herself and her surviving daughters, Isabella and Margaret number two, to Seaham Harbor, where she started dating a man named Joseph Natras, who was already engaged to another woman. Great. And during this time, Margaret number two died of typhus fever at the age of three and a half. Mm. This left Mary with only one child of the up to nine that they speculated she had given birth to. There's a lot of places that aren't quite sure if she had four to five children with William prior to Margaret's birth in 1856. Dang. 
um, just because there's no documentation listed anywhere as far as birth certificates, but it's believed she had four to five children before she had their first documented child together. Wow. Yeah. So after Margaret number two's death and after Mary discovered she couldn't convince Joseph to break his engagement, Mary moved back to Sunderland to work at the Sunderland Infirmary. Infirmary. This has the longest name in history. (laughs) I'm ready. To work at the Sunderland Infirmary, House of Recovery for the Cure of Contagious Fever, Dispensary, and Humane Society. I don't get why they need the Humane Society at the end. Maybe that was their catch-all. Like, they were like, "Mm, we were a little too specific. We're also just a humane society. And at this time, she sent her surviving daughter, Isabella, to live with her mother in Merton. So she's a single lady on the town working at the Humane Society. And she's a widow. Does she tell people that? Mm -hmm. During her time as a nurse, Mary would clean the wards with a mixture of soap and arsenic. And I did I not call this? Yeah. I'm just going to put it in everything. (laughs) (laughs) It's like an essential oil. And like my big fat Greek wedding where he was just like, put some Windex Windex. (laughs) Essential oils where they're like, put it in your food, put it in your beverage, put it in your sheets. Like everything smells like sweet orange now. Everyone loves to smell of grapefruit. No, that's not a thing. Yeah, she would clean the wards with a mixture of soap and arsenic. And the staff often commented on and admired her diligence with her work and friendliness to her patients. And working as a nurse also allowed her easy access to arsenic. No questions asked. Great. Wink, wink. Mary went on to marry one of her patients, a Mr. George Ward, who was an engineer. They wed on August 28th, 1865 at St. Peter's Church in Monkwearmouth. Monkermouth? <laughs> Monkwearmouth. Okay. Monkermouth? <laughs> I live in Monkermouth. <laughs> That's why I said I hope I get these right because they're so weird. Monk wear mouth. That's not any better. No. Than Munker mouth. (laughs) Mouth. I feel like they'd have a really good cheese shop. Oh man. Found a Munker mouth. We got church cheese. Our body. George uh, continued to experience poor health after his release from super long named infirmary. The Humane Society. The Humane Society. George continued to experience poor health and passed on October 20th, 1866, after a long illness that included paralysis and intestinal problems. Oh, no, not the intestines again. Right? She has the worst luck with people in intestines. It's almost like intestines don't like her. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. His cause of death was listed as cholera and typhoid. His doctor would later say that although George had been very ill, he was surprised by how suddenly he died. And once again, you guessed it, Mary collected insurance money after her second husband's death. Was this $5? I didn't see an amount in my research. (gasps) But he was an engineer. So I I don't know. I don't know how much he was insured for. $5. (laughs) Five pounds. (laughs) <laughs> One, the old meter sandwich. Gross. After her husband's death, her second husband's death, Mary was hired in November of 1866. 
Wait, wasn't that the third one? Melissa's her second husband's staff. So she was just dating the other guy? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. She had five kids with the guy she was just dating? No, she married the first one. She married William. She dated a guy named Joseph who was engaged. But then when he was like, oh, I love this other woman, she was like, well, screw that. And then she moved and dropped her kid off at her mom's and went and became a nurse and then married the engineer who then died of problems with his intestines. So that is husband number two that has been buried. So after husband number two's death, Mary was hired in November of 1866 by James Robinson, a shipwright, which is someone who builds ships which I did not know. Thank you, Wikipedia. Yeah. At Pallion in Sunderland, whose wife, Hannah, had also recently died. So he was a widower. And in December of that year, James's son, John, died of gastric fever. And James turned to his housekeeper for comfort, and Mary soon became pregnant. Around this time, Mary's mother contracted hepatitis. So she immediately went to her. And although she seemed to be on the mend, she began to complain of stomach pains shortly after Mary's arrival. Oh, no. That never happens. No. She died in the spring of 1867 at the age of 54, just nine days after Mary's arrival. Wow. She was a dinosaur. Mm-hmm. She should have been put in the Humane Society. I don't know. <laughs> she would have been safer there. Right. So Mary's daughter, Isabella, who had been living with her mother, with her grandmother, excuse me. Oh, okay. I was like, what? (laughs) How did that happen? Sorry, I wrote that wrong in my notes. So Mary's daughter, Isabella, who had been living with her grandmother. For a long time now. Yes. Came back to Sunderland with Mary to live in the Robinson household. Okay. Do we know how old she is at this point? What's 67 minus 58? Is that nine? Ten? Nine? Mm-hmm. Okay, so she would have been nine. She was only nine years old when she went back to her mom? hmm Yeah, so Mary's daughter, Isabella, age nine, who'd been living with her grandmother, came back to Sunderland with Mary to live in the Robinson household, where Isabella soon developed severe stomach pains. She died, as did two of James's five children, Elizabeth and James Jr., all three children were laid to rest the last week of April in 1867. Jeez. Uh, Mary collected on Isabella's life insurance policy with a payment of 10 pounds, which would be around 1,200 pounds today. I was just going to say, she only got two pounds from the first son. Mm-hmm. Jeez. Not to be deterred, uh, Jane decided to marry Mary. On August 11th of 1867 at St. Michael's Church in Bishop Wearmouth. <laughs> I don't know where the bishop's mouth is. I don't know. <laughs> you got me. I love how one's like, these are all churches or towns that are based off of like different levels of Catholicism. Like one's like Bonk's Wearmouth. Now we're in. Bishop Wearmouth. So in November of that year, their first child, Margaret Isabella. So this is Margaret number three for those keeping track at home. Jeez. Was born, but she became ill and died in February of 1868. So she would have been like three months old. Mm -hmm. They had a son named George, 
on June 18th, 1869. So the year, the next year, they had a Sunday marriage. Not long after. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, James began to get suspicious of his wife's insistence that he take out a life insurance policy. He had recently discovered that she had accumulated 60 pounds worth of debt behind his back, which is 7,200 pounds today. Dang. And stolen more than 50 pounds, which is 6,000 today, that she was supposed to deposit in the bank. He also found out that Mary had been forcing his older children to pawn off household valuables. Should have killed them too. (laughs) (laughs) So after all this, he chucked her and kept their son, George, which probably saved both their lives. Wow. That's crazy. I wonder how he found out. Well, he probably got a note from the bank being like, hey, you owe us money. And he's probably like, well, what? Why do I owe you money if my wife's been depositing all this money? So penniless and living on the streets, Mary went to her friend, Margaret Cotton, because Margaret's the most popular name in the universe at this point, (laughs) apparently, who took pity on her and introduced her to her brother, Frederick. Oh, no. Who was a recent widower that lived in Walbottle, Northumberland. He was a pit man and was raising two of his four children alone, as two of them had died prior to him meeting Mary. Margaret had been acting as a proxy mother for Frederick Jr. and Charles, but in March of 1870, she died of an undetermined stomach ailment, which left Mary to console her grieving brother before Mary found herself... Surprise, surprise, pregnant with her 12th child. Dang. Frederick and Mary were married bigamously because she was still married to her other husband. Did she tell him that? Nope. Figured. On September 17th, 1870, at St. Andrew's Newcastle upon Tyne, and welcomed their son Robert in early 1871. And not long after this, Mary discovered that her former flame, Uh, Joseph Natras, was living nearby in West Auckland, and he was no longer married. Interesting. Eager to rekindle the romance, she persuaded her new husband and his family to move so she could be near him. And in December of that year, Frederick died from gastric fever, and Mary collected on the insurance she had taken out on him. After her fourth husband's death... Joseph became Mary's lodger, and at this time, she took up employment as a nurse to an excise officer that was recovering from smallpox. What's that? The excise officer? It's like a tax collector. Oh, that's dangerous. They, um... That's really risky of her to date someone that's, like, technically a government worker. uh Mm-hmm. Someone's getting confident. All right. So she was his nurse as he recovered from smallpox. And this man, Mr. Richard Quickman, specialized in breweries. So he was an excise officer for liquor. And he became Mary's lover. And she became pregnant with his child, which was her 13th, if you're in track. Okay, The sex would have been kind of sad if he's still recovering from smallpox. Right? Like, I would think he wouldn't have a lot of stamina recovering from smallpox. A lot of uh, questionable practice in coupling. 
So I want to note here that Richard Quick Man was noted on some sites as John Quick Manning, but there aren't any records from that time that list anyone as living by that name in that city. Hmm. Which would be weird if he like worked collecting taxes. You would think that he would be on some form of record. Yes. Unless it was shady boots. (laughs) Unless it was, uh, yeah, super shady. But there were records of someone with that profession named Richard Quick Man. So for the sake of the story, I'm going by that name as opposed to the other one. That's fair. Just to clarify in case anyone's like, hey, hey, I know about this story. That's wrong. You might be right, but we don't we don't think you're right. So move on. <laughs> this is our podcast. <laughs> so in March of 1872, Frederick Jr., from her fourth marriage, who is not her son by birth, died at the age of 10. And Robert, her infant son with her fourth husband, passed not long after. Hmm. Joseph Natris, who she had moved to West Auckland to be with, became ill with gastric fever around this time and died shortly after revising his will and naming Mary as his beneficiary. Wow. Did she clean his house recently with arsenic? I hope so. If you put me in your will, I'll clean your house. (laughs) It'll be so clean. It'll kill all the bugs. Yeah. And you, maybe. I'm really good at at getting rid of vermin. I'm really good at cleaning house. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Mary had taken out an insurance policy on seven-year-old Charles. No. Who was her fourth husband's surviving son. And this plan would mark her downfall. So Mary asked a local parish official who was named Thomas Riley if he would help nurse a woman that was ill with smallpox. Because you'll remember she was a nurse at this time. Right. She complained to Thomas that her stepson Charles was in the way and asked if he could be committed to a workhouse, which is a place that you would go if you couldn't support yourself and if you needed a place to live and work. Kind of like um, Oliver Twist type of thing. Okay. Like almost like a halfway home, like not quite an orphanage. Yeah. So you're basically working for room and board. So you're an indentured servant, essentially. Pretty much. As a child. Yes. Got it. And Thomas told her she couldn't do that because she'd have to accompany him there. He wouldn't be able to stay unless she committed herself as well. Because obviously he has a place to live. Right. There's nothing wrong with his current situation. Yep. Uh, She soon added to Thomas that the boy was sickly and let slip that she, quote, won't be troubled long. He'll go like all the rest of the cottons. Oh, dang. Yep. And true to her word, five days later, she told Thomas that Charles had died quite suddenly. And after hearing this, Thomas, who was also an assistant coroner, went to the police and convinced the doctor to wait to write a death certificate until they could conduct an investigation. Wow. Go, Thomas. Yeah. And Mary's first foray after Charles' death wasn't to the doctor, but instead the insurance office. Oh. Yeah. You know, because they close early. And because that's where you want to go when you're sad after someone dies. Yep. Nothing cleans tears better than money. Mm Mm-hmm. And once she arrived, she was told that they would not issue her the insurance payout until a death certificate had been issued. Good on them. Mm-hmm. 
Meanwhile, an inquest was held and the jury determined that Charles had died of natural causes. Mary claimed that she had treated his illness with arrowroot and that Thomas was lobbying allegations against her because she refused to be his lover. The old, he's attracted to me routine. Yeah. Got it. Because remember, she's pretty. But once the newspapers got a hold of the story, they quickly discovered that Mary had basically made a tour of Northern England, leaving behind her a trail of three dead husbands, a dead lover, a dead friend, a dead mother, and 11 dead children who had all passed from stomach fevers. That's just crazy. Uh, Richard Quick Mann was horrified by what he was reading in the papers about the woman he was looking to marry and his discovery of her as a poisonous may have saved his life. So how did she get away with it for so long? As we talked about at the top, one thing to remember is that arsenic is tasteless. Yeah. That the symptoms of arsenic poisoning, which are vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, were very similar to common maladies of the time, such as gastroenteritis or dysentery. The rumor mill led officials to conduct a scientific investigation. Dr. William Burns Kilburn, who had treated Charles prior to his death, had taken and kept samples, which he tested and discovered they contained arsenic. And after alerting the police of his discovery, Mary was arrested and Charles's body was exhumed along with that of Joseph Natris and two of Frederick's other children who had passed recently. Mm. So her stepsons. Yeah. Mary was charged with murder, mm-hmm. although the trial was delayed until after she delivered her 13th and final child on January 10th of 1873 in Durham Gowell. To recap, this is the child she had with her lover, Richard Mann, the lodger she had taken on who was recovering from smallpox. Yeah. Oh, and in case you're wondering, her final child was named Margaret, making her Margaret number four. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mary's trial began March 5th, 1873, and had been delayed due to issues selecting the prosecution counsel. Eventually, it was decided that Charles Russell would lead the prosecution, and the defense was handled by Thomas Campbell Foster. Mr. Foster alleged that Charles had died from inhaling arsenic that was used in the green dye for the wallpaper in the cotton home. Uh-huh. I plan to do an episode in the future about the green dye. arsenic in the use of like fashion and home goods. Yep. So to be continued at a later date for that. And at this point in history, it was common to have soft soap in the home, which was a mixture that contained arsenic, like what Mary used at the hospital. Mm -hmm. And it was not only used as a household cleaner, but it could double as a bug killer. Wow. Just pretty sweet. So handy. It slices, it dices. Wow. And in fact, at the time, it was very easy to go to the local chemist to purchase arsenic to make your own soft soap. Mm -hmm or to use in a tincture to treat certain maladies. Pretty easy to get arsenic. Yeah. And to cover up why you have it. Yeah. Dr. Kilburn and his assistant, uh, Mr. Chalmers, were local West Auckland practitioners that prescribed Mary medicine to administer to Charles. And during the initial search of her home, it is stated that several empty, quote unquote, medicine bottles were found. But when the police returned later to collect evidence, none could be found. 
Wow. Yep. Did she flush them in ye old chamber pot? (laughs) (laughs) It was speculated that Kilburn and Chalmers cleaned house to remove suspicion from themselves for providing Mary with the means to kill her family. That makes sense. Yep. Don't want to be included. Yep. And in fact, it was noted by Dr. Scattergood, who was a forensic examiner, that no medication bottles were produced into evidence or analyzed by him, even though Dr. Kilburn swore that he had sent some off to Leeds to be examined. Interesting. Mm-hmm. It's believed that the poison was administered by, mixed, by being mixed with other prescribed medications or that it was added to tea, coffee, or beef tea, which was like a type of broth. That you would basically drink if you were sick. Beef tea? Beef tea. It's basically just beef broth. Yeah, I don't care. That's the worst (laughs) name ever. I'm so sick. You know what I need right now? Beef tea. I just pictured them like carving off like little pieces of beef and like. Oh my God. It's like the world's worst cup of noodles. (laughs) What do you dip your sandwich in it? Like an au jus? (laughs) I'm so mad about that. Yeah. Not that she murdered all those people, but the beef tea? Who do I need to call to complain? Oh. <laughs> I love how that's your takeaway from this. The beef tea is the thing that puts you over the edge. I know. Yep. Shows you how. What you care about. Your priorities. Sensitive I am for other suffering. Mm-hmm. But in my defense, how many people suffered from beef tea? This is true. Their mom's going like, oh, here, (laughs) you're dying of dysentery. Here, have some beef tea before you die. The salt's good for you. Okay, sorry, keep going. (laughs) Okay. Given the testing that was done on several internal organs of the victims, which included the stomach, the liver, and the kidneys, uh, they show that there's no way that inhaling arsenic would lead to it being found in the soft tissues of the vital organs. Yeah, it would have to be ingested. Yep. And after three days of testimony, the jury deliberated for only 90 minutes before returning with a guilty verdict. Good. Newspaper The Times reported on March 20th that, quote, after conviction, the wretched woman exhibited strong emotion, but this gave place in a few hours to her habitual cold, reserved demeanor. And while she harbors a strong conviction that the royal clemency will be extended towards her, she staunchly asserts her innocence of the crime she has been convicted of. Sounds about right. Yeah. Most people who are guilty like to talk about how not guilty they are. Well, and they assume they're going to get away with it. Oh, yeah. And vain to the last, Mary was found brushing her long black hair in front of the mirror prior to her being led to the scaffold. She was quoted as saying, right, now I am ready. Classy. Mary was hanged at Durham County Gowell on March 24th, 1873, by William Calcraft, who was a, quote, notoriously clumsy hangman. She died not from a broken neck, but from strangulation caused by a shortened rope. In fact, William had to press down on her shoulders for some three minutes before she finally died. Oh, karma is a bitch. Some believe this was done intentionally. You know, I don't know. The justice system has always been fair, um, not cruel. And uh, hangings are always uh, done 
with accuracy and um, class? Mm-hmm. Was she given to her baby in a sack that just said property of like, it just said, I don't want this. <laughs> Not mine. Take it back. Return to sender. Right. Here's your mom. Here's your mom. Some of the 50 onlookers who witnessed her execution stated that she was, quote, strangled like a rabid dog with no dignity, even in death, which finally ended her 20 year murder spree. And after she was taken down from the scaffold, a cast was made of her head and her luxurious hair was cut close to her skull. But don't worry. It wasn't, it didn't become like this macabre souvenir. Like you hear about people like, you know, when they like kept pieces of the rope and all that kind of crap, all of her luxurious hair was buried with her. However, the cast of her skull was made so that she could be made into a wax model for Madame Tussauds Chamber of Horrors. Wow. She was doing it then. Mm-hmm. Did, did they do a really good job? Like, like they did with, um, who did they really mess up? Justin Bieber's was terrifying, I think. Yeah, his was horrifying. Um, I should see if I could find a picture of it. I bet yeah. there's, there's got to be a picture of it somewhere. I would hope. You know, I... Mm, what? This is going to be dark. Okay. So I don't know if you want to include this or not. Mm-hmm. But they should have used her hair to make a blanket for the baby. Oh, God. Please don't put that in there. That's dark as... I thought you were going to say to make the wig for her her model. That would have been the smart thing to do. would be to right? use her own they, hair. Well, they could have sold that hair for so much money. Especially, like, since smallpox was still a thing. Mm-hmm. But... So the aftermath of Marianne Cotton's life... Mary never confessed to any of the deaths, and the number of her victims isn't clear. But most sources believe she killed as many as 21 people, if not more. And although she is often labeled as Britain's first female serial killer, other women have been hung prior to her death for poisoning multiple people. Even so, Mary is widely regarded as one of the country's deadliest female killers. And of Mary's 13 children, only two survived her daughter, Margaret, number four who was adopted by an unnamed couple shortly after her birth. Cool. And her son, George, from her marriage to James Robinson, who was also her only surviving husband. Oh, yeah. The one that kicked her out. Yeah. I was like, who's the second one? Yeah. Wow. And shortly after her death, a macabre nursery rhyme was written about her that goes as follows. Marianne Cotton, she's dead and she's rotten. She lies in her bed with her eyes wide open. Sing, sing, oh, what can I sing? Marianne Cotton is tied up with string. Where, where? Up in the air. Selling black puddings, a penny a pair. Marianne Cotton, she's dead and forgotten. Lying in bed with her bones all rotten. Sing, sing, oh, what can I sing? Marianne Cotton. Tied up with string. Kids are dumb. (laughs) (laughs) And in case you didn't know, black pudding is blood sausage. Yeah. I don't want to assume that is a standard knowledge. Oh, yeah. And the final word on Marianne Cotton is that the Newcastle Chronicle described her. And she was only 40 years old when she died. 
as a monster in human shape. And that's the story of Marianne Cotton, the Black Widow who committed several acts of familiacide. Yeah. Technically, she'd be more of a praying mantis. Yeah. Do praying mantis eat their young? Do spiders eat their young? Um, hey, Google, do spiders eat their young? According to National Geographic, mother eating spiders, young spiderlings attack and eat their mother for survival. Oh, dang. Reavers. Hey, Google, do praying mantises eat their young? He's thinking. He's still thinking. I expect better of you, Google. Hey, he came in real quick on the spiders. He just must not know a lot about mantises. Mantises or manti? Manti. Manti. Manatee. Oh, my God. Are manatees the praying mantis of the sea? (laughs) (laughs) Willie really liked the manatees when we went to an aquarium. I think they're cute. He just kept staring at them. Don't they call them sea cows? I don't think we'll ever know. (laughs) The world may never know. I've asked like three times and it's just like dot, dot, dot. Just like we'll never know how many licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop. Don't we know that? I don't know. Ask Google. Hey, Google. How many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? Some students from Purdue actually figured it out. It takes 252 licks to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop. And then they failed their class. (laughs) (laughs) They're from Purdue. (laughs) They just started making chicken. You know how Google has like a suggest thing? Mm-hmm. It says, tell me a joke. I am your father. <laughs> I can has cheeseburger. <laughs> what is the meaning of life? What would you do for a Klondike bar? What can you do? That's just mean and rude. Don't ask that. Restaurants nearby. I'm bored. In sports news. <laughs> and then there's one that's just a thumbs up. I'm going to do the thumbs up. Because you care so much about sports. Aw. What do you say? Happy to help. Aw. Thanks, Google. Thanks, Google. Stop listening to everything I say. Oh, man. So what do you yeah. think? What do you think about the story of Marianne Cotton? Final thoughts. Final thoughts. Um, she was a garbage human. Mm-hmm. I wish I knew more about like what she did with the money, especially since she just kept like dumping her kids off too. Cause you mentioned briefly that she had debts too. So I wonder like, did she gamble during the day? Did she buy like really extravagant dresses? Did she eat good bread? I, all I know is that she moved around a lot, probably to avoid Suspicious. one detection because mm-hmm. all our kids are dying. Right. And two, probably to flee any sort of debt collectors. Yeah. Cause she kept going to like opposite ends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll notice she never got married at the same church twice. Yep. She almost beat the final boss. So yeah, she sucked. Mm-hmm. I hope her kids are okay. The ones that survived. I hope they live to be 30 and have luxuriously long black, black hair. <laughs> Never had to be put in a mean society. All right. Happy thing. You go. For those of you that don't know, I, I being Lindsay, I am the one that manages all of our social. 
So I'm really active on our Twitter. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to comment about how nice the podcast community is on Twitter. Like it's a really fun, positive community. Like people don't try to tear each other down, which is such an unusual thing to see on the internet. It's true. Especially on Twitter. Yeah. Cause Twitter can be a bit of a dumpster fire. Yeah. There's a lot of cancer culture in Twitter. So I thought I would give a shout out to some of the podcasts that I found through Twitter that I have listened to and that I really enjoyed kind of um, help boost some of the people who have been so kind to us. So one of them is that I haven't gotten super far into yet is it's murder up North. And I've listened to a couple of episodes of that podcast, but I think Jenny does a good job. I like that title. It's murder up North. Yeah. Yeah. She covers cases in Northern England. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty good. She's got a decent catalog of episodes that I still have not had a chance to like listen to yet. And none of them are really long. I think the longest one is like an hour. Well, no, because she has one about Black Lives Matter. That's about an hour and a half. But nice. most of them are like 20 to 40 minutes. So pretty quick listens. Right. Good for car trips. Mm-hmm. It's once that happens again. Or walks around the lake with your dog like I've been doing. Right. Yeah, so I just kind of wanted to shout out people that I've checked out, and I'll probably try to do that more as I work my way through some of the ones that I've been trying to listen to. Awesome. I adopted a dog. (laughs) Right, that's the thing you just kind of like blow past, right? Yeah, well, at the point that we're recording this, I've had her for like three weeks. Mm. She's not like a new thing. The last time we recorded, I had still been looking at adopting a dog. Yep. And the second week of June, we came home with Kona, who is a Staffordshire Pitbull Terrier mix of some short of some sort. She's about six months old, extremely intelligent. Very pretty. Very cute. She's got brindle coloring. Mm-hmm. I'll post some pictures of her on our social. Those are my my couple things. How about you? I've been really crafty lately, so I just kind of reorganized my apartment again. I got a new work computer, and so I built that, discovered that my card table I was using as a desk no longer works. So um, while I was rearranging my living room, I then discovered my, you remember my hanging lamp? I got this like crazy street lamp from a Goodwill in Iowa in 2008 and I've had it ever since it's always had really bad wiring and it finally like failed and I couldn't fix it Mm -hmm. so I went to Menards and I'm not crafty like I'm I'm okay but I'm not like as crafty as you or mom Mm -hmm. and I was looking at all the lights and they were all really cool but they're all like a hundred bucks for a lamp and some metal which is dumb Mm-hmm. So I found these, li- these light kits and I made my own light. Nice. And I'm really proud of it. And I hope it doesn't break because I'll be really sad. I didn't tell you. What? So I ordered two new face masks that I'm very excited for. Yeah. And one, well, I guess I ordered four, but so I got, I ordered two from that one lady. Mm-hmm. Betsy. Betsy. And I ordered one that is it's got 
plague doctors on it. Of course it does. And I am so excited to get it. <laughs> and then I ordered the hashtag the cowboy one. That's like oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. neck thing and it's got the fake mustache on it. I am so excited. That comes on Monday. That's going to be so fun. All right. You ready? Mm-hmm. All right. Let's shut her down. You can find us online at yeoldcrimepodcast.com and follow us on social media at Ye Old Crime Pod on Twitter and Ye Old Crime Podcast on Instagram. You can also email us at yeoldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider giving us a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, as it really helps us out. If you really like us, you can also support us at Yield Crime Podcast on Patreon. And as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale. As old as crime. <laughs> <laughs>